Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and I will be your host as we dive into an interview that I did with Vin Armani. This interview was pretty long and so I am breaking it up into four sections similarly to how I did in season two. When I did some long interviews there, I broke those up into sections as well. But the difference this time is that I believe the things that Vin and I talked about are so timely and important that there is some commentary that I want to interject in between the sections of the interview, and I want to elaborate on some of the points that we talk about and get into a little more detail. And so that will be the rough format of this series, so to say, with Vin Armani, where I will play a section of the interview that'll be roughly, say, 45 minutes long or so. And then the next episode that I release will be elaborations and commentary and details on the things that we covered in that section. And then we'll move on to the next section with commentary in the next episode following that and so on and so forth. So that is the format that I will be pursuing to give you a rough idea of the things that we talked about. In this first section, we talked a lot about historical cycles and patterns and things of that nature. In the next section of the interview, we really got into the Church of Woke and what that means and how the desire for spirituality and for a greater purpose and for religion is being filled in modern times and our culture and how that's playing out, what that looks like. That will be part two. Part three also touches a little more on some different aspects of historical cycles and starts off that way, but then gets into religion and the church and early Christianity compared to kind of pop Christianity that we have in today's culture and how all these things fit into this idea of being in the dim age and all the different things that we're talking about in relation to that. And then part four gets even more into the spiritual side of the conversation and wraps up the interview at the end with a few kind of more random questions that I have for him. And so that is the broad overview of our interview and how it's segmented. And so with that, I will just go ahead and get us started with part one of the interview that I did with Vin Armani. Well, hello and welcome to the show. If you would, would you please introduce yourself and give us a very brief description of your background and where you come from. Oh man, my name is Vin. <laughs> my name is Vin Armani. I don't know if I can give a brief description of my background, but I'm sure that we'll get into some of that. I I guess I'm best known uh, by the general public as a star of a TV show that was called, uh, or that is called, I guess, Gigolos, that was on Showtime for many years in the uh, 2010s and most recently probably best known for my involvement in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community as well as sort of a, a public figure within I guess what we would call the the liberty or libertarian community although I don't necessarily identify myself as libertarian and I uh, yeah I have several I have several cryptocurrency businesses that I do and uh, quite a bit of software development and I also have a an agorist newsletter called Countermarkets. So I guess that would be the the brief introduction to to me. Okay, perfect. Well, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on and why I think you are probably the absolute perfect guest for this episode and this show is because in my podcast, I basically laid out an overview of the evolution of society in season one, and it really culminated at the end with talking about agorism. And that's something that obviously you focus on as well. And then season two was all about um, historical patterns and using the example of the Reformation time period and how many different parallels are playing out now um, that are mm -hmm. the same or at least very similar as then. 
And so that's something that uh, really correlates well with your dim age theory and how uh, we'll, I guess we'll get into that next. But then also the next season of my show gets into looking at the teachings of the New Testament and the first Christians and Jesus's teaching, Sermon on the Mount especially, and how those relate to agorism and voluntarism and basically all of these other things and getting movements off the ground, kind of systems within systems. And, uh, and that is something that uh, I believe you are writing a book on right now as well. So all of these things really correlate together. And I- I'd really like you to start off ideally and tell us just a little bit about the dim age and what you mean by that. And to begin with, kind of what got you into looking at, I guess, this idea of social cycles or historical patterns, these types of things, uh, where did that come from? So when I was in my, oh God, how old was I? Early 20s. Yeah, I wouldn't have even been 21. So probably 1920. Uh, just as I was back from university, came back, I went to Howard University and, and uh, came back to California where I'm from. And fa- I, through, I don't know, circumstances, fate, what have you, found myself as, I guess you might say an apprentice, although I didn't realize it at the time, but apprentice to the gentle- a gentleman that I would, is definitely my first business mentor, a, uh, an entrepreneur. Indian uh, of of Indian ethnicity from Hong Kong, who uh, was a property owner and owned several businesses. Uh, particularly, I was running a, a small hotel property for him, and he was so his wife, his wife's mother, so his mother-in-law was the first female follower of a an Indian guru by the name of P. R. Sarkar who was quite notorious in India. He founded a group called Ananda Marga, which means the path of bliss. And it is a, a tantric tantric yoga group in the way that that is understood by Hindus, not, I would think, by Westerners. Westerners hear tantric yoga and they think it's something about sex or something like that. Tantra is, it, it basically means like struggle. And it's, it's very close in spiritual meaning and understanding for followers to uh, the concept of jihad in, in Islam, certainly at the spiritual level, not talking about at the, the, the material level of like waging war, but this idea of, of jihad as a spiritual concept of a struggle toward transcendence. Hmm. And... This particular guru, very interesting, he was imprisoned by Indira Gandhi for his his writings and his work because they thought that he was a socialist or a communist and that he was spreading communism uh, because his writing, they didn't really understand what where he was coming from, what his political philosophy was. But his political philosophy uh, was called PROUT, P-R-O-U-T, which is an acronym for Progressive Utilization Theory and or proper utilization theory sometimes uh it was it was presented as and i was introduced to both the group ananda marga i was initiated into their their form of meditation and their form of yoga but also uh, a great gift of being able to have access to the not writings because he he pr sakar didn't write um but there was lots of recordings and then um transcriptions of talks that he would give, which is very similar again to Muhammad, right? So the Quran, Muhammad didn't write the Quran. He, he spoke the Quran uh, and then it was transcribed. So um, within that, I was able to get access to printings that are, are just simply not available anymore out there. That was uh, one in particular, Prout in a Nutshell. And this was a description that began with his description of this, the human social cycle and uh, relating it to the Varnas, which are the, which turned into the, the Hindu caste system. It comes from out of the Vedas. Um, it's a four class, four castes or classes, you could say, of like the commoner and pe- or peasant, the warrior, the um, thinker or priest, and then the merchant. And uh, we also see this. This also happens to be the four suits of cards in a playing card deck. It also happens to be the the four suits in tarot as well. So 
this is a spiritual tradition that has moved along. And the idea that these four, four energies play with each other in society is both in the East and in the West. It's, uh, it's, it's one of these universal patterns. Uh, by the way, it can also be found in the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament in the right order in Genesis, by the way. Huh. So this is a very old. So, yeah. So if you go Adam as the uh, commoner, basically character, Cain as the warrior, uh, the the first priest certainly would be Noah, uh, the thinker, right? The architect, the first one, and then uh, Abraham as the merchant. I mean, the very first thing he does is basically, for for lack of a better term, and not to be blasphemous, but we're introduced to Abraham pimping his wife to the Pharaoh <laughs> of Egypt. Um, that's, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be glib about it, but that's clearly what goes on, and he ends up through that process leaving Egypt with. Uh, with quite a bit of wealth. So you actually see that play out. So this is an eternal, this is a, a cycle of energies. And when I first ran across this again, I was 19, 20 years old and it stuck with me because Sarkar presented the idea that we are approaching a shift. He was talking, he was speaking in the seventies and he said, uh, this is the shift that's coming. He had said that, you know, the shift that was coming was a move into the, the Vaisha age, the merchant age. But uh, I had thought at the time that, oh, that's probably already happened. And I think that I was, uh, you know, I was definitely on, on the left at that time and a bit of a socialist. And uh, I said, oh, well, we're probably, he's probably the proletarian revolution is coming. And that's what he's, we're moving back to the commoner. And uh no, that certainly isn't the case. He was saying he was basically predicting what's happening now. I followed that for many years, just watching, seeing the patterns unfold. And it was clear that, yes, this is what was going on and getting deeper into more esoteric knowledge. And then in about 2016, it became really clear to me that the shift was imminent. And I started studying very heavily, did a lot of writing. Um, that was in between my first and second book. And I did a video series called The Ascendant Project, which is on my YouTube channel. People can check it out. That's basically the, I thought I would do a book on it, but then I said, ah, people are not going to read this book if it's a book, but, but I think people will watch these videos, uh, you know. So, so I turned it into a video series. I don't know, it's maybe eight, 18 hours long or maybe less. And um, yeah, so it's there if people want to check that out. So I've been following this for basically, I mean, I'm 42 so I've basically been following this idea and the thread of this for, for two decades, basically all of my adult life. And it, it brings us to now. And it's the reason why, you know, I do, it's kind of funny and a bit tongue in cheek when I'll do predictions of things that are, ha that are about to come. And, uh, you know, the, the whole, there's a little Vince Stradamus thing. If you go and you do <laughs> hashtag Vince Stradamus and it's, it's, it's a bit funny and a bit tongue in cheek, but it's also to some people, I think a bit spooky. And when they ask why, why are you able to do this? How are you able to make these predictions? I tell them this, it's just, it's right there. The initiated have known about this for as long as there have been human beings. And we see it just repeated over and over and over again in spiritual writings and whatnot. And so um, that's, I guess that's a, that's kind of a long way of, of saying that. And, and to, to cap it off in terms of what is the dim age, it is, you know, in addition to the cycle of the, that human social cycle, which has been expressed in other ways. We have like the fourth turning and some other, some other examples, but these are all just reflections of the same uh, pattern. But there's also another pattern in humanity that I've, that I've also come to the realization of, and that is the move from uh, the material to the mystical and uh, human beings. This is what the dim age is about. And this is the movement of, for instance, the Rome falling and moving into the dark ages that, that fundamentally human existence, as we understand it, and this is like self-evident, is, uh, is made up of a material understanding of reality, you could say, or us dealing in a material realm and a, a, an immaterial or otherwise uh, mystical realm. And so there is the material realm of, you know, uh, our, our bodily functions and the things that we need to get by and you know, water is wet and fire is hot and we have to navigate that world. And, you know, if we feel pain, we got to deal with that and whatnot. And then there is the immaterial or mystical. And this is very much something that is a part of, of you know, the human human existence. And 
it, whether you are a mystic or a materialist, even the most materialist person, if they're listening to this and they've understood anything that I've just said, then they are acknowledging the existence of the immaterial and the mystical and uh, because I'm just making mouth noises. And these mouth noises have no intrinsic meaning or or effect in the material world. And we know that because if you don't speak English, uh, what you could listen to this and there's nothing there for you, especially if you speak a language that doesn't that's not even related. You know, if you speak um, Khoisan or something like that, for, if you're a, a Kalahari Bushman, this this entire time, this is the last five minutes has meant nothing. It's just been mouth noises. And so uh, that is immaterial. That is mystical. The fact that language does mean something. And we can't deny that it means something because to even deny that it means something, we have to use language to deny it. So um, that is, I think for people who are materialists, that is a great jumping off point. And as we can see, that's a big part of the shift that's happening is we're seeing that reality itself is being crafted by the use of language. That whether or not something is is dangerous or uh, whether or not something is good or whether or not something is bad and, or whether or not something is an imminent threat, whether you should feel fear, whether you should feel love, whether you should, uh, whether your neighbor is an enemy or a friend is completely dependent upon language as it's being used and nothing else and nothing else. And so this is what marks the move from a material age into a mystical age. And this has happened many times in the past and it will happen many times again. And this is just part of the human social cycle. Now, did do you have any association with uh, the theories of Sorokin with the sensate versus ideational cycles? Uh, well, that sounds exactly like material to mystical. Yes, yes. Right? <laughs> it's 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 what again. These you would imagine that if so. Let's say this. Have you ever been to Vegas, Las Vegas? I have. Okay. So I lived in Las Vegas for next to 10 years, right? Close to t- Pretty close to 10 years. Um, I know lots of different parts of Vegas. And you went to Vegas and visited. You didn't live there, did you? You just visited? No. Nope. Just okay. visited. So you saw a limited set of what there is to see in Vegas. Yeah. So if you, if I was to say, well, what is Vegas like, right? You're somebody who's there. You relate your experience and now I might relate my experience. They're both true, right? And you might use a term for something, and I might use a different term. Or there might even be some jargon associated with that term, right? So you might say something about a slot machine that had particular lights. And if I'm in the slot machine industry, I'll say, oh, that's a XYZ, whatever it is. And you say, okay. But we're both experiencing the same thing, right? So... I think what's what we see is that if what we see is so you said sensate and ideational, something like that. Yes, basically the same thing. Senses versus ideas kind of thing. Right. So material versus immaterial. Yeah. Right. So the what we experience with our material form, the material part of our reality, the material part of our being versus the immaterial aspect of reality that we deal with, which is conceptual, abstract. I mean, we could do synonym after synonym after synonym, but what we run across is the same pattern over and over and over again. So it's almost like if I hear sensate and ideational, I already know we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, And I could, re- and I could read it, but would it help me? Probably not, because I, I would just be like, okay, yeah, maybe there's a little nugget here or there that would help. Oh, that's kind of a cool way of articulating that. I like that, and I grab it. But if I understand the concept, it's not, you know, we're going to see it over and over and over and over and over again since these patterns have happened over and over again. And they happen in every single culture, in every single language, across every single time period. And so what's helpful is for us to be able to find a good description that's a thorough description that we're able to understand because then we get predictive power. And that's really what we're looking for as human beings. That's really what makes knowledge valuable. Not trivia, but predictive power. So it's not just to slam a bunch of things into our head, but it's our ability to say, 
oh, I know where we were, I know where we are, and I know where this is going. Now let me prepare. And that's Noah and the Ark, right? That's the gift that esoteric knowledge is meant to give to us, the gift of, of prophecy, of prediction. And the reason and meaning for that prophecy is to protect ourselves and those we love, right? To, to be able to build the Ark to put them in it. That's the reason that this knowledge is valuable. Yeah, it's hard. I guess it's hard to be effective if you don't really know where we're going or what's coming. And you can be extremely effective if you even know at least the trend of where we're headed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with um, the the pattern from Sarkar, you're talking about going from the commoner to the warrior to the priest to the merchant. It sounds like, and my thought at least, would be that we are currently in this age of economics, of capitalism, of the merchant, Mm -hmm. and we would be, at least in my mind, heading into the next round, which I would think would be back to the commoner. Is that how you see it, or do you see us going even more into the merchant category? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's actually only been through watching this shift that I have understood better how this how this works. So I think the one thing that you have to understand when we talk about we're moving from and going into, all of these archetypes are in existence within our reality at any given time. And so it's just a matter of which is the most ascendant. And that's sort of the where are you. But it's very difficult to know kind of where are you on the wheel. So you figure that there's a wheel and there's a gradient that's something like a spectrum. If we're looking at, let's say, a color wheel, you know, of the color spectrum. And we say, well, where is it, where is it red and where is it orange? Like, where does it stop being red and start being orange, right? That's a very difficult, certainly from a material standpoint, that's a very difficult thing to pinpoint. And we can spend a lot of time digging, 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 right down into the minutia to say, ah, well, no, there's still a little red and Oh, no, 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 there's more orange. And like that can that can grab us and we can really pay attention with that. But what you should always know is that we are always moving forward. We're always moving into another age. Um, clearly, I think anybody could see that, yes, this is a Vaisha age. The question is, what part of the Vaisha age are we in? And what I what I now understand is, that sort of the way that this happens, you could look at it almost like a, like a roller coaster in a way. And the reason why one gets more ascendant than the other, it really has to do with, a, um, you might say, a balancing of, a balancing of the, corrupt, the, the influence of corruption or entropy, spiritual entropy in a way. Um, so what we have, why the Vaisha energy rises is because when you have the thinker energy as a whole, you you get a class of in you get a class of individuals and a large population that is by necessity what you would call unproductive, right? So if we have people who are thinking about things and writing and doing whatever they're doing, they are they are unproductive entities, right? Yeah. So uh, you need to have uh, an efficiency mechanism within your your social cycle and so that's really what the the vaishas the merchants do is they find ways of taking the the bit of uh, production that you have and making it far more efficient in other words allowing there to be more thinkers so they they enable the thinking class to exist and in many ways we see this with like you know the reason that you're able to have institutions of higher learning to the degree that you do is because of things like endowments, right? Is because of donors. And where are these donors coming from? When we see like the foundations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, the Annenberg Foundation. Okay, these are names of vaishas, of merchants, of capitalists who are giving to what? They're giving to thinker, priest class, academic institutions, and so this is the reason why the academics, at least in the beginning, will embrace that, oh, this is coming in, and then they will also serve the merchants. And so what you get is you get this, and that's we're seeing this now, right? So this is the rise 
the ascendant rise of that. And over the peak, where it starts to corrupt and go down, and I think that that's what we've seen, is that we're at the level of corruption, is where the thinker class, whose job it is to, to articulate reason, to articulate the material world, certainly, they become completely beholden to the funding. That's, a, that's the corruption of that. And at that, it's, so it's really the corruption of the previous that leads to the rise of the next. And so what we have now is we have the full corruption, I believe, of the Vipra thinker class. Full corruption. There's, there's very, and we saw, we are seeing this with the, the whole like COVID trust the science thing, which is really trust the experts. And then you notice that all of the experts are on the payroll of the same people who are going to benefit financially, the same merchants who are benefiting fi- financially from the advice that is being given by the experts. And there are, there's very little pure sort of untouchable uh, in that regard. And so we have, I think we are seeing the full Vaisha ascendancy and uh, merchant ascendancy. I think this is becoming incredibly clear to people over the last couple of weeks where I've been saying, I've been trying to warn that, that this was the case and trying to warn that, for instance, you know, I was putting out tweets to be like, here's Jack Dorsey. This is a man who, with the word and the wave of his his hand, can effectively silence the president of the United States, who the term was, oh, he's the most powerful man in the world. Is he? If he can be silenced by this man, well, maybe this is the most powerful man. And what is his archetype? And his archetype is Vaisha. And so we are going to see the rise, the full rise. I think think that... One of one of two things is happening. We are not in the the light rise of them, but we are in the full descent and probably about to hit terminal velocity. And it, it's at that terminal velocity that, and I you can see the inklings of it already. That basically, as the the Vaisha corrupt and they no longer are serving their customers, and they are that that is how they corrupt is that within their power, they, they no longer serve their customers and instead they seek to manipulate their customers instead of solving their customers' problems. Or they create the customers' problems in a cynical way for them and then solve them. Kind of snake oil salesman, right? Would be the, would be the um, playing on the fears and playing on emotion and deception in order to make a profit. This would be the most corrupt version of a merchant. This is not the noble merchant who is solving your problem at a good price, right? Like a great mechanic or a great electrician or a great carpenter where you feel like, wow, they did such wonderful work and it was well worth the price, like at great work at a great price in honest day's labor, you know? Um, We're past that. And so it is within that corruption. I think we still have a long way to go of that corruption. It could be another generation. It could be another two. But within that is the kernel of the rise of the shudra, of the commoner. And that's going to be in, I think we're seeing this, this notion of decentralization, this notion of self-sufficiency, all of this. And you can see how that is the commoner energy creeping out and, and expressing itself. And eventually the Vaisha, the merchants will go too far and, and they will push, they will push that to happen just as the Vipras push the Vaisha into, uh, into power. Okay. So there is a, a rotation that actually I just thought about a few days ago and I've been bouncing around in my head that I think would be kind of another way of stating the mystical to material cycle, but maybe I can spitball it out to you and see what you let's think. Um, so throughout history, let's say beginning of Rome or just prior to Rome, Uh, religion played a really major role. The gods were a really big deal. And then as the Mm -hmm. Roman Empire started to grow and uh, the bureaucracy grew, the power of the state became more prominent. And then as Rome fell, the state lost its prominence and religion came right back up in its place throughout the Middle Ages. And Mm -hmm. as the Middle Ages started to culminate, you see the same thing where religion started to fall back in the background. You have the Enlightenment and the state 
comes back up in its place, and that's kind of where we are today. And then the next cycle would be the state losing its prominence and religion coming back up. Now, I guess the catch here would be that it wouldn't, I I don't see that as being Christianity per se, which is uh, more common in the West in that kind of line that I just mentioned, but something more along the lines of the Church of Woke and equality and uh, all of these types of things that you hear discussed about environmentalism and um, all of that type of stuff. Is that something that you see fitting in with that shift to the more mystical, the more spiritual, the more religious? And do you see that gaining a foothold over the powers of, let's say, the bureaucratic state, so to say. And then you mentioned how the merchants um, also use uh, these tools to their advantage. And even going back in history, the Medici used Mm -hmm. the office of the Pope, even. They used religion, which was dominant at the time. And we see the same thing now, where it's these big corporations that are actually pushing the woke culture mm-hmm. and censoring the opposite. And it's a bit of a corruption of the age before. And yeah, it, it seems like all that fits. Does that, does that fit to you? you? That's the pattern. You're seeing the pattern. I think one thing that I would add to it is it, it's become clear to me that at least one manifestation, because I think what's what's helpful as you look at these patterns, because if we're we're looking for where these like catalyst points or are, or what is the what is the mechanism that turns the wheel? And as far as I can tell, the the best articulation of the mechanism that turns the wheel, although he I, he wasn't intending to, uh, he was just making an observation of a an axiom. Uh, is Hume, the, the wheel from uh, mystical to material and material back to mystical, is Hume what some people might know as Hume's guillotine and what other people who've studied philosophy might know as the is-ought problem. Or people who, for instance, listen to like Sam Harris or the New Atheist, right? Yes. Is the, they speak about the is-ought problem or the idea that you can't derive an ought from an is or that you can't while you can know what things are uh you you cannot derive what you ought to do with that knowledge right what is the proper course of action to take once you have that knowledge um or or whether it is desirable to do so so for instance you could know that a uh a a gun right that firing a bullet uh, through a human being will kill them, but can you, d- unless you have the the uh, a moral background, unless you have some other type of framework, the idea is, sh- but ought you to be shooting a gun at another human being, right? And in some situations, <laughs> we would say yes, that is a moral action, and in others, we would say that is not a moral action. But we cannot just from the simple fact of the is know the ought. And so in this movement of state to religion or state to, if, it really is material to mystical and it sort of is ought is. So as far as I can tell, what happens is that there is a moral code. And I think let's use the United States as an example because that's we're going through it right now, right? Um, it's a lot easier for us to, to do that because it's a little more modern rather than to, to really go back into Rome but it will help us to see some of the things with Rome. So the United States has begun on a moral foundation, a a moral foundation, not an immoral foundation, but on a moral foundation. And that is in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with by their creator with certain inalienable rights, chief among these life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And then as he goes through to say, basically, what is right and what is wrong based upon those axioms. And then what we had was the development of a state. So you move on to the Constitution, and the Constitution is a quite material expression of those values, including then adding in the Bill of Rights as well. So it's like, how do we express the ought in the is? How do we do that? How do we? And, and so then you have all of this material on, on the second Tuesday of November and you will do this and there will be a census every 10 years. And then, you know, 
any anything over ten dollars in a civil trial will be a jury, and then there will be nine justices on the Supreme Court, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These very logistical aspects, right? Which are those are not in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is an ought. It's very much saying we are declaring independence because it is the correct moral thing to do, and here is why. So what you have is that can sustain for a while. And this is when you talk about the, the gods are prominent and then the state takes prominence. What you're basically seeing is you're seeing the ought. The ought is there to start out with. You build the is to express the ought, but then the is becomes preeminent and you move into bureaucracy, right? Where And anybody who has dealt with a bureaucracy has experienced this, where you go and you say, oh, I'd like to do this. And they say, oh, well, I can't do that because procedure. And you say, literally, all you have to do is move your hand. Can you just move your hand over here and do this? And they're like, no, I can't. Procedure, right? There are like NPCs where you're like, oh my God, this is the most ridiculous. Anybody who's been at the DMV is like, this is the most ridiculous thing. I don't understand. They're not even acting like human beings, <laughs> right? Which the acting like human beings part is the immaterial moral part, right? That you're wanting them to be a moral actor. That's what makes someone not an NPC. But instead, they're, they're acting in the is. They're not acting in the ought. They're not seeking. Th- so their ought becomes the furtherance of the is, Their entire ought is to move the structure forward, but the structure is flawed. The structure is flawed and the structure needs to be, this is why there was an idea that the Constitution can be amended because they were like, well, we've gotten some things wrong here. It's just like software. There's bugs in here. We've gotten them wrong. And so the proper thing to do is to let the ought continue to operate inside of this. But... You ha- that means that you have to have a moral, a, f- a fount of moral information outside of that. And that was the role that religion has always played. That's the role that prayer is supposed to play. That's what you're doing when you, when you are going to pray in a mystical way. And still in traditions like the Orthodox Church, is that what you're doing when you pray is you are looking for something outside of yourself. This is also in shamanic practice. I've done many ayahuasca ceremonies. That's what you're doing. That The message that comes back is not part of the is. It's not part of the material world. It's from outside, and then you manifest it. It's inspiration, revelation. These are the things that that's where you derive your ought. And so what you see is you see the state come into prominence. So why does the state fall? Well, the state falls because the, the is of the procedure can no longer be reborn. It can no longer grow. Once it reaches a point of stagnation where it cannot grow and be added onto, it decays and corrupts because it can't meet the oughts anymore of the people. Where the people's moral ideals come into conflict, what, what should we be doing comes into conflict with what does the state allow to happen. Then surely the state must collapse. And this is the reason why the West, quote-unquote, collapsed, and the basically the conquered people, Odoacer, right? So we had Rome taken over by their formerly conquered, like, Gauls and Goths and whatnot, came in and took over Western Rome because Western Rome's system could not fulfill their oughts. Those people had oughts that were in contrast to Western Rome. Eastern Rome had a much better time of it, and Byzantine Empire lasted another thousand years after the West quote-unquote fell, and the main reason for that was they adopted Christianity, and Christianity filled the void that was needed to be able to continually add the oughts, because it was a source of moral uh, behavior and also moral growth, especially in that time. That's when we see you know, the, the, the big saints of the Christian church, the Desert Fathers especially, going in, Benedict and Gregory and all of these, going into um, Augustine, going into the desert, talking with God one-on-one, and coming back with some moral behavior that then shaped the ought of the empire and was implemented into the is of the state. And that's the only way that you can keep re- re- rejuvenating the state. It has to allow for the ought. 
Um, and that's the point that we've reached now. And you could see it even with the fact of, you know, the behavior that's taking place with coronavirus to where it's like, here are the numbers on coronavirus. We're, we're, uh, you know, we're down to 0% in the ICU. And that means you have to wear a mask in your house. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. What? How did we? That's nope. You have to because of this number. We've, we've got over one in three people in Los Angeles. I just saw this today has had the coronavirus. And it's like, well, but one in three people hasn't died. Doesn't matter. One in three people have had the coronavirus at some time. That means we have to shut down all the restaurants and there can be no indoor or outdoor dining. And it's like, how did you, I don't understand. How do you jump to that? That's crazy. And so, but this is what happens when the ought, the ought can no longer affect the is. And the is just moves forward on its own. And the ought becomes the is, the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy just rolls along to try to, to, try to uh, keep itself together. As far as I can tell, that is the mechanism behind the rise and fall of empires. Okay. Well, that, that might answer a question that I had a friend ask me today. And we were talking about some similar things. And he was basically asking, how do people go along with everything that's going on with this whole, let's say the new world order agenda kind of a thing, the great reset, Mm -hmm. um, even though the facts and logic and rationality do not back up what is being implemented and what is being said, people are going along with it and not only just um, being subservient to it, they are pushing it forward and demanding these things. Number one, uh, how and why, if they know, they know, like you said, we know the bureaucracy is corrupt Anybody you ask is going to say that politicians are corrupt and can't be trusted. You have barely a double-digit approval rating in Congress and the presidency for the past probably few decades, but people are still getting right behind that and putting their trust and faith in the state and pushing that along. So why and how how do they justify this? How, how does this happen? This is the ought-is problem. And so this is why what is happening, I think what's important for people to understand is that it is not the state. The state, the state as, you, as we previously knew it, no longer exists. It has been taken over by a theocracy. And that theocracy is the answer to the ought-is problem. So, so again, this is a natural process that we reach a point where the state cannot answer the ought. And what you have, uh, if you have a society that is going to survive and stay, stay alive, is there is some other source for the ought. Generally, that's going to be a religion. Um, in America, in the U.S., that has been... There has been a separation of church and state, but the idea has always been that the politicians take their moral framework with them when they go to work, right? When they go to the state house. And you could see how this was important because, you know, even we go back to John F. Kennedy, and there were were a lot of individuals, uh, particularly in the, I mean, he was a Democrat. And this was when the shift of the Democrats happened. Now, you got to remember that at that time, the Democratic Party was also the party of, of you know, the Jim Crow folks down in the South, right? Dixiecrats. And there was a big concern about, well, he's a, he's a Catholic. He's a papist. He's going to take his moral, Catholic, the Catholic morality into his leadership role. That was actually expected. That was not that long ago. Right, the expectation of everyone was that you would bring put somebody in office who had a, a, a spiritual and religious background that was expected, and that that's actually in large part what you were putting them in for was their moral and spiritual rectitude. Think about politicians now; they give lip service to being part of a religion or anything like that. Uh, in especially well, when it comes to Christianity, so they give lip service to it, but those we we still want to understand their moral framework, and this is where the Church of Woke has stepped in. It's a church that nobody yet realizes is a church. 
And it's providing a very clear moral framework across all kinds of domains, from climate to child rearing, to the relationship between men and women, to to gender itself, to economic, excuse me, economic systems, right? You name it, the Church of Woke has a cult for it. To health, to how do you deal with the pandemic? You name the, the thing, the Church of Woke has a cult for it. And they act just like cults, but yet nobody knows that they're a cult. But they are providing the exact thing that religion does. And better than any sort of modern pop religion does. Because modern religions don't have that, uh, they don't have that full and holistic view. You know, Orthodox Christianity is probably the exception that has this full holistic view of human life and that your participation in that is the entire the entirety of human life. And so there's not really a reason for the state. Um, if we it's interesting because actually this is the founding idea that is that was pushed by um, Syed Qutb, who is, you could say, the ideological father of what we would now know as jihadist Islam, maybe, fundamentalist Islam, uh, certainly that which is the clash of empires that the West has been fighting against since uh, uh, September 11th. And his fundamental idea was, uh, it's kind of, I know we both are on this kingdom of God idea. He was very much pushing the idea of the kingdom of God. Um, and the idea that uh, if Islamic law was followed, Sharia law was followed by all people, there would be no need for the state because all people would be in order. This is his utopian idea. And that the goal then should be to clear the way for Sharia so that it could so that it could take over as much area as possible, and then we no longer need the state. So there it's a very anti-state idea, and the idea underpinning it that he was he was realizing this in the 50s, and part of it was because he came and visited America as a student. That's where he that's how he was radicalized, was that he saw that the state of America was corrupting because it did not have strong moral guidance for every aspect of life, and therefore it would be taken over and it would be corrupted by the worst thing possible. And in many ways, he was exactly right. His prescription was terrible. His prescription was was quite evil, uh, it's particularly in the way that it's been implemented. But his observation, I think, was spot on, and we're seeing it play out now. Yeah, yeah, that's that kind of goes along with something I hadn't really tied it together until now and you started talking about that example. But I've said before that, in my opinion, at least, I feel like this idea of there being no such thing as absolute truth, there is no such thing as set morality, that religion is not really looked upon very favorably in modern culture, and that this has really driven people to things like being radicalized by terrorist mm -hmm. groups because they actually have a set morality. They have set rules and they live it out and they they truly believe it. They are true believers and that gives people something greater than themselves to live for and to be a part of. And I would say the same on the opposite end for those that commit suicide and that have mm -hmm. these problems. It's that they don't really have anything to live for. They don't have a greater purpose. They don't see any set rules in society. All they see is this corruption that we're talking about is so obvious in, in this age, in this time period. And so you have that despair. And if you don't have anything to fill that void, that void of mysticism or meaning or however mm -hmm. we want to look at that, then that can lead to one extreme or the other, and neither one is very good. <laughs> I will cut off this section of the interview right here. I think that's a pretty good stopping point, and we'll pick up next time with the following part. But in between the two, like I said, I will do a commentary episode where I will elaborate more on these things that we discussed in this episode. I think there are many different points that definitely deserve more discussion and more thought. And so that's what I'll focus on. But one thing that I 
we'll go ahead and include right now because it's short and fairly minor. But at the beginning of the interview, Vin did mention how Abraham pimped his wife when they went to Egypt. Technically, the biblical account says that Abraham went to Egypt. He was worried that his wife would be taken and he would be killed because his wife was so beautiful and he was afraid that the ruler of Egypt would find out and take his wife for his harem. And so to prevent this from happening, he decided to have his wife claim that she was his sister. And that's what they did. They played those roles. And sure enough, Abraham's wife was found to be extremely beautiful, so much so that she was brought into the ruler's harem, and it played out basically the way that Abraham was afraid. But because they claimed she was his sister, he was not killed, but on the contrary, he was actually rewarded, and the pharaoh was seeking his favor, his family's favor, because of the attraction to and inclusion of his wife, Abraham's wife, into the harem. And that's kind of how it played out. Now, the biblical account says that God then brought plagues upon Egypt. And this isn't the plagues that you hear about in most of the Bible stories. This is a different time well before that. But Plagues were brought about in the land of Egypt and against the Pharaoh, and so he figured out that Sarah was not Abraham's sister, but actually was his wife, and that was why these plagues were hitting him and his household, and so he basically got very angry with Abraham. He released Abraham's wife from his harem and sent Abraham away and even sent him away with lots of goods and material things. So the point about Abraham gaining riches through that experience is true. And if you don't take the biblical account as being historically accurate, then you could say that there is a chance that Abraham was doing this deliberately in order to win the favor of the Pharaoh. Now, I would argue that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because then he would lose his wife. If that actually plays out in that way, according to that narrative, then Pharaoh would take his wife and Abraham would have some wealth and riches and some influence within the royalty of Egypt, but he would lose his wife. And it seems like he really cared about his wife and didn't want to lose her. And so I don't really follow that same interpretation. But I just wanted to clarify because the biblical account is different than the way that Vin very briefly commented on. Now, I also want to give you a bit of a preview while it's fresh on your mind. Since you just listened to this section of the interview, I want to tell you about the different things that I'll be talking about in the next episode where I do some more commentary and elaboration. So I want to get a little more into the Varnas as well as Sorokin's theories, as well as the fourth turning. So all of these, uh, the Varnas are from Hinduism and Sarkar, and then you have Sorokin, the Russian sociologist. He was the one that talked about the sensate versus the ideational, and I think there is more there to talk about and draw out, as well as the fourth turning that was just very briefly alluded to, then just mentioned the name and moved on, but that also deserves a little bit of attention as well. There are some there's some added value there that that theory brings to the table. And like he said, all of these things do follow similar patterns and they do say similar things and they talk about similar aspects of historical cycles, but they all also bring unique aspects to the table. And so I want to at least mention some of the unique aspects of some of these other things. Now, I also want to get a little more into talking about language. I want to talk a little bit more about these different classes and how you have the priest class or the intellectual class, you have the corruption of the merchant class, and how they also are using the corrupted thinker class, and how all of these things work together, and how that cycle of corruption and the use of the previous age in the current age happens, and basically just how all of that links together 
I also want to bring that forward into the age that we are entering or that we are in or that we are about to enter, however you interpret the place we are in the cycle. I will elaborate a little more on the ought is problem and apply that to the COVID situation that we are currently in right now, as at least as of this recording, and also apply that to the age of science that we are coming into. And I think there are some very relevant things there to draw out. And then I'll wrap up with a little bit about pop Christianity versus the Church of Woke and the different roles that these play. And that will lead us into the next part of the interview that will be the following episode after that. So that's what we'll have coming up. The next episode after this will be the commentary the way that I just described it. Then we'll have part two of the interview with Vin Armani, where we really get into this idea of wokeism as a religion and the church of woke and what that means and how that's playing out in today's society and culture and in this historical cycle and all of these types of things. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you really enjoy this whole series. I think it is, like I said, very timely and very important. It also fits perfectly within the timeline of this podcast, the Our Foundations podcast. And so especially if you have been following along since season one, this is really going to tie a lot of things together. It's going to hit on things that I have mentioned briefly before. I've talked about these historical cycles. That was the entirety of the last season, season two, about the parallel to the Reformation. And Vin and I do bring that up and talk about some of those same parallels and patterns and aspects aspects as well. We also get into current events and how to interpret that from a different perspective, which is kind of what I've been doing in this interim series that I have been doing before this interview and after season two is kind of an interim in between the two seasons. And so that is something that ties in really well. And then the next season, season three of our foundations, we'll get into looking at the church, the early church, early Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, these types of things, and looking at that as an example of how to live in the type of world that we are in now and entering into, how to look at that movement as a movement and how it was organized and what they really believed and some of the parallels between that and the types of things that I have discussed this entire time on the podcast in various ways and various aspects. So overall, this interview and the commentary in between really fits in well with the podcast as a whole. And I think it will be a great wrap up of season one, season two, and the interim series that I did. It really wraps all that up nicely, ties a lot of things together, draws from a lot of those same concepts. And really, by the time we hit the fourth section of this interview that I did, it will be the perfect setup for season three. And I believe it will basically be guiding you into wanting more of that style of content and wanting some of those more, I guess, spiritual or mystical questions answered and addressing some of those types of things. So stay tuned and enjoy the series. With that, thank you very much for listening. Specifically, thank you to those of you who have left a review or a rating or both, ideally. And thank you to the patrons who financially support this podcast. I really appreciate that. And for you patrons, keep an eye out. I will at some point publish the interview in its entirety on the Patreon page with your private podcast feed. And so you will get access to that. So if you want to hear the entire interview uncut front to back, then you will have access to that on the Patreon page. I don't think I'll be able to have the commentary in all the different sections because, well, I haven't recorded all of them yet, so that's not really possible. But I can at least give you the entire interview, similarly to how I did in season two, where I would release the long interviews in sections, but I would release the entire thing at the beginning for the Patreon subscribers. So that is something to look out for as well. And with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening.
Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.